Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies, and welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I am Sophia, and I am joined by Tracy Lindemann. Hi, Tracy. Hi. <laughs> We're about to have no fun. No fun. <laughs> Tracy is wearing a shirt that has no fun in all capital letters. So <laughs> if you want a fun podcast, this is not the one. This is not the episode for you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I we'll know have a good time. <laughs> right. Well, you know how I interpreted that was like, we're about to talk about endometriosis and our fucked up medical system and misogyny in medicine. And I'm like, to me, that's like, what is no fun is the fact that that exists. So that's my interpretation. That's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Tracy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? I am a Canadian. I live in uh, Quebec. I'm from Montreal. I currently live in Western Quebec. Um, I have been a freelance journalist um, for almost 20 years. And I wrote the book Bleed, uh, Destroying Myths and Misogyny in Endometriosis Care, which just came out at the end of March. Uh, and it has been doing very well. Yes. Oh my God. I'm so glad. <laughs> Anyone who has listened to this podcast knows, because I talk about it all the time, is like my surprise, disdain, disgust, disheartenment, disheartenment. I don't know if that's a word. Um, with care around endometriosis because I was diagnosed a couple of years ago. I was like, my body turned 40 and was like, hi, we're going to like shake things up a little bit. And uh, yeah, and going through this process, being part of Facebook's groups and witnessing other people's challenges with endo and endo care, especially in Canada, has been deeply shocking. So I've been talking and bitching about it a lot. And so mm -hmm. when I saw your book, I, I think I reached out right away. I was like, Tracy, can we please have a conversation? Because... <laughs> You bring in the layer of weight bias on top of the already existing deeply rooted misogyny. Mm -hmm. And now a fat person walks in and it's just like, it is game over with care. So that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about those intersectionalities as well. Um, so thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here, Tracy. I've like, I literally, I'm like gleeful right now. Um, okay, so let's start with what your relationship is to the word fat. Yeah, that's a really tough question to start with um, because I still don't use it to refer to myself. Um, I tend to call myself a bigger person, not a big person, just a bigger person. Um, and like sometimes I'll use fat, but it doesn't feel quite my style, I guess. Um, but I always have been a bigger person. Um, I'm not the biggest bigger person. I'm not the smallest bigger person. I'm kind of like right in the middle. 
Um, and yeah, I've, I've basically had a bigger body, uh, since I was a kid. Um, and you know, it's gone through different phases, bigger, bigger, smaller, smallest, bigger. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely still a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. It's a work in progress. What is like to, to kind of be with body changes or use the word or not use the word? Like, um, yeah, to, I don't really think I need to use the word, um, because I live in it, right? Like I live in this body and people can see me like the work in progress is more like acceptance. Um, and also, um, being able to confront people about their weight bias, which I do in the book and which since writing the book, I've been way more capable of doing. Um, and like when I went to the endo summit last month, I straight up like talked to doctors about it and their faces were like, <laughs> as in like shocked or like, Oh gosh, I'm learning something I didn't know. A little bit of both. I think to have someone so explicitly talk about the discrimination they face as a bigger person was kind of like, huh, hmm, maybe I'm not as good of a guy and a good ally as I thought it was. Oh, thank you for doing that on behalf of all fat endo people everywhere or fat people in general who have to deal with the medical system. Yeah, it's really hard. And I've, I've talked quite a bit about um, advocating for myself, calling out anti-fat bias within medical appointments. And it is a really hard thing to do. So I'm just like, yeah, because you automatically put doctors on the defensive, right? Oh yeah. They get so defensive. They're like, I've literally had people say, no, it's just calories in, calories out. You shouldn't be fat. And I'm like, okay, where do we go from here? You literally have a speculum inside of my vagina right now. And you're just, you're a size probably zero or two. And this is what you're hurling at me <laughs> while you're inside my body? Like, yes, please ah! go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> oh my God. I love, so that's amazing. I love that you're like, yeah, challenging doctors from, from your position of power, really having become, you know, you're an authority now. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> it's um, I don't know if it's liberating, but it feels good to step into that um, power and not feel like I always have to be victimized by medical appointments. Right. Because like, even now, like when I go to see the doctor, um, I get very emotional. Like sometimes they just have to walk into the room and I'm like automatically like, <laughs> but it's because I've been gaslit and discriminated against pretty much my entire life. Right. So, um, like, it's just like the expectation that this appointment won't be any better than the past ones is like, I can't, it's really hard to overcome that. Um, for a lot of different reasons and my weight being one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the emotional labor that goes into preparing for medical appointments. I don't think people, people who aren't living in marginalized bodies or people that don't carry marginalized identities, like it's, it's exhausting. Like I'll just speak for myself and I imagine you have a similar feeling too, like psyching ourselves up, mentally preparing, doing breathing exercises in the car as I drive to the doctor, thinking through, okay, if this situation shows up, okay, this is what I'm going to say. Okay. If this one shows up, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This one shows up, I'm just going to let it go. Like I just can't fight today. And the, it's like, you're, I feel like I prepare for battle every time I just go to do anything medically mm -hmm. related, let yeah. alone have a procedure. 
Oh my God. That will be yeah. invasive and painful, which I have yeah. in like a week and I'm like dreading it. <laughs> well, have you finished the, the book, Bleed? No, no. Okay. So towards the end, um, I talk about this appointment that I had with an orthopedic surgeon because I also have like a really serious back condition. And he basically was like, have you considered losing weight? And I was like, are you fucking stupid? Like, <laughs> like this is the first time I'd ever met him. And I was like, you think I don't have a mirror? Like, you think that it hasn't occurred to me before? Like, oh my God, what a revelation. I don't live in this society that tells me constantly that I should yes. think about losing weight. <laughs> have I ever thought about it? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, a long story short is I'm seeing that doctor again <laughs> this week. But I, I, um, I'm doing it from a position where, like, bas- like I'm not going to, like, give you the whole long story, but basically... Um, I went back to him because I finally had an MRI. The first MRI in my entire life in January. I'm almost 39 years old. But with a back injury, the first with a back MRI? injury since I was 14 and endo. And and then I sent him the results to be like, I thought you should see these. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Not weight related. Yeah. And um and uh he was like, Well, you can come back and see me if you like. And the way that the system works here is like Basically, I'm at the back of the line in my province and he's in Ontario and I live on the border of Ontario and Quebec. And so I was like, I'm either going to wait years to see someone on my side or I can go see him this week. Um, so I told him, I'm like, if you can control yourself. <laughs> you like, said that? Yeah. Hell yes. <laughs> Tracy, I'm so inspired by you right now. <laughs> so basically, I'm like the one holding the cards and I feel a lot more empowered. Uh, but we'll see what happens, you know, Wednesday when I actually go to the hospital and do all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. And we shouldn't have to do all this. Like these are care professionals. Yeah. Like they should care about me regardless of what body I'm in. But also like, have has he ever considered that perhaps I am less able to do certain physical activities because my back is fucked up? Like, <laughs> it's not like I can just be like, oh yeah, I'm just going to like run a marathon tomorrow. Uh, and every day after that for the next two years. And that'll work, right? Like my back is like permanently fucked up. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, it's so frustrating. Oh my God. I think I'm just gonna say that a lot throughout this episode. <laughs> so you, okay. So tell us about your, I guess like your journey with endo that led you to writing the book. Like basically what led you to just being like, all right, I just got to write about this because this is bananas. Um, yeah. So I think, um, for me, um, I, it kind of dawned on me maybe like right before the pandemic started that, um, like this was, I'm a journalist and this was a story I had been ignoring for so long because it was my life. Um, and it wasn't that I didn't want to write about it. It was just kind of like my personal life and my professional life were like on two separate tracks. Like they run parallel to each other, but not necessarily intersecting. And I always kind of treated work as a way to like distract myself or overcome pain. So like, it wasn't really something I had considered writing about, but then when I got diagnosed in late 2019, like October 2019, I think. Oh, that's my timeline um, too. Yeah, yeah. After 24 years of asking for one, <laughs> um, I was like, well, finally, there's an arc to the story, right? It's not just like endless suffering with no 
change. Like there's actually something happening now. Um, and so, uh, I was like, oh, well now there's something changing in my life. Maybe now like I'm on, maybe I'm like getting to the other side of the hill, you know, that I've been like climbing for 24 years. (laughs) Um, and so that felt like maybe the impetus for kind of writing it. And I think my own like understanding of feminism and intersectionality, like had to be more fully formed for me to write this book. Um, because I think that, um, feminism is something that's like a lifelong process, right? When you come, when it comes to intersectionality and inclusion and developing your own values and policies and, and things like that, like it's, it's a a nonstop evolution. And so I think my own learning needed to evolve a little bit more. And at the time that I started thinking about writing the book, that's when I started feeling like I had like kind of like framed it, um, the way that I wanted it to be framed, um, for my own, like, you know, value system and sense of ethics and personal responsibility in this. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love that. That makes so much sense. So, Let's, I just realized I, we've been using the word endometriosis, but there might be people listening who don't actually know what it is. Do you want to give like a quick little spiel? Like what is endometriosis? Yeah. So it is, um, it happens when tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside of the uterus. Uh, and it can attach to the outside of your uterus, your ovaries, your, uh, colon, your bowels, your intestines, your stomach, your, uh, lungs, your diaphragm, bladder, ureters, your brain, even it can even be in your skin, your nose, as I learned today, of course, it can be pretty much anywhere. Um, and it, um, these like lesions, adhesions, endometriomas, uh, are, you know, some people have them and have no pain, but most people have significant pain and it's considered one of the most painful conditions to exist. Um, and 10% of women, uh, you know, people assigned female at birth have it. Um, but I'm starting to say 5% of the global population because that's more inclusive. Um, and also maybe more staggering, <laughs> like even though it's not 10, but like 5% of the whole world has this, um, and not just 10% of half the world. <laughs> it's just like a reconfiguration of the same math, but I think it's a better way of describing it. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it just shows like, it, how deeply impactful it is. Um, I often think of endometriosis, like I've, I remember reading that it's almost like, I don't think it looks like this, but it the way it moves through the body, it may, it's like sticky. It like sticks to things and stops them from working properly, which is why there can be so much pain. And when you try to have it surgically excised, so surgically removed, there's a lot of risk involved because you're having to like take it off of other parts of our bodies, right? Other organs. Well, some organs are riskier than others. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And that's, so surgery is one of the treating options. What are some of the others that are used? (laughs) Well, like doctors will prescribe hormonal birth control or, um, GnRH uh, agonist and antagonist like Lupron and Oralissa to help control symptoms, but it does not control the disease. It does not stop the progression of the disease. They are merely uh, palliative treatments. Um, the only genuine solution for endo is excision um, that limits 
you know, if it's done by a qualified doctor, because a lot of gynecologists are out here cutting people open without knowing how to actually take care of the endo lesions. So when it's done by a surgeon who actually knows what they're doing, <laughs> um, you know, recurrence does happen, but the the risk of recurrence uh, is usually quite a lot lower um, than, obla- than uh, ablation, which is like kind of cauterizing or burning off lesions. Um, and yeah, but yeah, like there's all sorts of different differences of opinions on um, what treats people. As we saw recently, like Dr. Jen Ashton on, was, went up on ABC and was like, you have to remove the ovaries and you have to do this and have to do that. And, you know, that caused a lot of consternation in the endo community because people were saying um, that's not actually true and you're not giving your patients the opportunity to have informed consent because you're telling them that this is the only option. Um, but it isn't. And, you know, even, uh, you know, doctors like, uh, Dr. Jeff Arrington, uh, who is like a world renowned excision specialist was like, you're wrong. And she doubled down and tripled down, you know? (laughs) So like people with endo are still facing these kinds of doctors in the day to day. Um, and, uh, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Well, and I ran into this with my, I went to uh, just kind of like a regular run-of-the-mill gynecologist, got diagnosed with an endometrioma, which is basically an endo growth, kind of, it looks like a cyst, but it's bigger. In my case, it's bigger um, on one of my ovaries. And so the concern is with endo, because it does grow in spider web, that it will like kind of like leave my ovary and start to travel around my body. And so well, maybe it already has and like, and they don't even know where to look, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. So there's different uh, tests that you can do. You can do like pelvic ultrasounds. You can do deeper ultrasounds. Sometimes that shows stuff. Sometimes it doesn't. It really is not super well understood. We don't have a lot of really good tools for imaging. Yeah. So, so just on that, um, I was diagnosed via ultrasound. Uh, it's called UBESS, so UBES level two. Um, it is a transvaginal transvaginal ultrasound, but it's like a dynamic ultrasound where they move that thing around and it's like 20 minutes long. Mine was done by a doctor, not a tech. Um, and they were like diagnosing me in real time. I think in my case, it was obvious I had it because they could see my bowel. But you know, that ultrasound probably doesn't see what's going on in your diaphragm, in your lungs, in your wherever. You know, It just sees like what's immediately close to, uh, you know, the vagina and the uterus. Um, and so it's like, it is an interesting tool. It's a more accessible tool than like laparoscopic surgery, but it's not purely definitive. Uh, but something I also want to mention is that I did at least six other transvaginal ultrasounds before that diagnostic one. And it always came back as there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you because one, the doctor didn't know how to read it for endo and the tech didn't know how to read it for endo. And two, like it just maybe wasn't like fine enough imaging. Um, but I think like those things are not mutually exclusive. Like it was probably a combination of both and maybe some mysterious other third factor. <laughs> but yeah, it was like, you know, like the absence of disease, according to them on my ultrasounds, perpetuated lack of diagnosis for years and years and years. And also like transvaginal, can we just have a moment for like how traumatic transvaginal ultrasounds are? Seriously, I've had probably 30 because I also had an ectopic pregnancy about mm, how many years ago? 15 years ago now. Yeah. And like, so I'm so well versed and they're traumatic every single time. Yeah. 
And it's like they become more traumatic with each new one. Yeah. Just for people who don't know, basically they take a, you're in a room, your feet are in stirrups, you're bare from the waist down. There's kind of like, there's a probe, like the, the tool they insert inside of you. It's, it's long. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's not small. <laughs> um, they cover it with a condom. So there's like, there's kind of like a whole weird sexual thing to it, which also feels very weird to me. And it's, they put lube on it. They put lube, lube on it. Yeah. Yeah. The last one I had, they used the finger of a glove. <laughs> that felt more insulting than just like a straight up medical condom. <laughs> oh, I don't like that at all. Why don't I like that? That feels very off-putting to me. The finger yeah, of a glove. Yeah, it was like, oh, we just had this old thing lying around. Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, 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 no. And like, you're <laughs> just... The, like the other fingers are just like flapping around. I know. No, I don't like it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Tracy, that's horrible. Because this is the thing. I hope people are really getting a sense. Like if you've never had, if you're if you're not someone with a uterus or you've never had to like be in these situations, like it's weird. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. You're often in pain. This is not like a comfy situation anyway. Your body's in pain. And so, yeah, they insert this thing inside of you and they move it around. And I've always had a tech until I went to um, Dr. Leonardi in Hamilton, who is quite a well-known um, endo surgeon. And he's developed a lot of really advanced imaging. So I waited two years, got an ultrasound with him. And it was, I mean, it was intense. Like he basically, he wanted to see if my endometrioma, which is like this like ball on one of my um, ovaries had spread. So he was like, no joke, moving this thing around to like jiggle my insides and see if it was sticky or moving. Uh, it was, I was like, this feels fucking awful. I was in pain. It was shocking. I also kind of was like, because he had already mentioned like the O word before he even started. I'm like, are you going? And, and I'm not, I don't want to slander. I'm not slandering Dr. Leonardi. He's, he's been good. Um, he definitely has anti-fat bias though, no doubt, because it came up in our conversation. And like, and I tried to talk to him about it. He wasn't super interested. Fine, whatever. Wait, what's the O word? Oh, obesity. Okay. I was yeah. like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's such a weight stigmatizing word. Like I told him, I was like, look, you can use the word fat. I'm a fat person. Um, anyway. Yeah. Obese is like not the right term to refer it is, to people. No, yeah. it is not. And that's what all doctors do, which is yeah. fucking ridiculous. Scientific. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And so I just, it was like, this feels a little like, I know he was doing it on purpose. I have, again, this is not like that, but it felt it felt really dramatic, traumatic. Like, again, if you, it's a really, it is a really traumatizing procedure to have done, to have a pelvic. It is, and they don't really prepare you for what it's going to be like, because it is different than like a conventional, like in and out type transvaginal ultrasound, right? Um, like they're digging and, around. <laughs> yes, they're digging around. But also like, can we just appreciate that one of the top, symptoms of endo is painful sex because of pe like penetrative sex right and so the penetration like replicated by this probe is painful on its own uh it's not just that your body is in pain it's like they're causing you pain by doing it um and so even though it's not sex like it's still penetration uh in a way 
and sometimes they even like, I didn't have to do this, but I know other people who've had to do it, like a rectal probe. And it's like, no, thank you. <laughs> well, and then they, then they also often want to do other tests, or at least in my case, they did. They wanted to see if I have uterine cancer because of the thickness of my endometrial lining. So then they basically take like an oversized fork and put that inside of you and like get scrapings. That was the one that got me. And that's the one I have to have again, like next week. And I'm already fucking. And of course they do it without any fucking numbing, right? No, there's no numbing. They're like, you could take an Advil. I'm like, I'll take five. Thank you. And that still will do nothing. Like it's. And like five Xanax too. Like, oh it's just, my God. Like, like this is, you know, relevant to like IUD insertions where they could use numbing cream. They just don't. Um, and it really doesn't cost much. It really doesn't add time to things. Like truly, like if you believe in the humanity of your patients, numb it. Like it doesn't need to be as painful as you're making it. Um, and I do not understand why doctors continue to insist on doing it without any kind of numbing. Well, this is where I wonder, is this the misogyny piece that comes in? Like the lack of respect, understanding, care for our pain and our comfort. Like, is, like, are there roots of that? Like, what, what did you find as you were exploring this? Yeah, like, I think in this particular instance, like, I think it's misogyny plus fat phobia. If you're a woman of color, it's maybe uh, misogyny plus fat phobia plus racism <laughs> or xenophobia. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to feel like you can advocate for yourself when your feet are up in stirrups and someone's gazing into your vagina. Like, you know, you feel so powerless in that moment. And you're scared. Like, I'm scared in those moments. I'm like, oh God, is this going to hurt? Please don't hurt me. But I have to do it. Like, it's a whole, it's a real mind fuck to be, you know, feet up in the stirrups and having things done to your body. Yeah, but something that um, uh, on Instagram, uh, her handle is rebellious uterus. Um, something that, uh, she said at the end of summit that really stuck with me because it had literally never occurred to me was that when she's meeting a new doctor and they're like, okay, I'm going to like leave the room so that you can get changed. She just doesn't. And then they come back, they come back and they're like, why aren't you changed? And she's like, like usually in that first appointment, like you don't actually need to do a physical exam. You just need to listen to me, listen to what I'm telling you. And like, if you go in and immediately do the physical exam part, like you automatically put yourself at a power disadvantage, right? And so this is a way that she kind of uses it to be on like an even playing field. And I'm like, that has literally never occurred to me because you're trained, especially as a young person with endo. Like when I was like, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, I wasn't having pelvic exams at the time, but like that dynamic was set, right? Where it's like, just listen to what the doctor says. They know what's best. Um, and like, oh my God, like what a revelation. Oh my God. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to try that too. Because because what I hear there too is it's like, you, I'm if I did, like I can imagine if I did that, I'm forcing the doctor to acknowledge my humanity in that moment. Because that's what feels is stripped away. Yeah. You just feel like a cadaver, like a body, but not a person. And and like, they kind of treat us that way too, often. Um, well, it starts for fat people too. It starts with like the gown not fitting. 
Yes. Can I have a bigger one? Can I have two? Right. And then they're like, just put this front and back. And you're like, that doesn't work. Like, it. come on. It doesn't actually cover. It doesn't feel comfortable. Then like the, the tiny little, the thinnest paper imaginable. So that as soon as I move, all the paper rips. And it probably does it for all bodies. But of course, I think, oh yes. God, it's my fat body that's breaking it. Then there's a whole like getting up onto the bed that is very narrow. So I feel like I'm going to fall off. And you then there's like. You to put your arms. Right. There's you nowhere like, to put tuck your them behind arms. your backs. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right then the otherwise feet. you're just like loose oh, yes <laughs> i know so like all of this is like my body is a problem in every way the moment i walk in so like so something i've started being able to do is like when i got that mri in january i went in and they gave me a robe and i just said i don't think this is going to fit me can you give me a bigger one and they were like oh of course like because like I find as a bigger person who's been through so many different medical procedures, doctors, tests, whatever, um, it's like, like you feel like you shouldn't have to ask to be accommodated. Like that you should just like try to fit into what's given to you. Um, and if it doesn't fit, well, like that's your fault, right? Because you're the one who's fat. Um, but actually like telling people that something doesn't work or something doesn't fit and like just like kind of pointing those things out and people are like oh my god of course like if you often not always but often when you give people the opportunity to to reflect on how you're not being accommodated they're like of course i will accommodate you um but but like often as bigger people like we tend to like just internalize that conversation and be like they're not going to help me they're going to just tell me that i'm fat it's my fault um and so like it's so freeing to be in a, a place in my life where I'm like, this isn't fit. Give me something new. Or like going into a store even to like buy a piece of clothing or some underwear or something like that and be like, do you have a bigger size? And like, I think that's like a way of confronting anti-fat bias in society that um, is, it's a one-on-one -on -one encounter, but you might change the way that that one person thinks. And that, that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say what you're saying is very true for kind of like on the lower range of fatness, but as you start to become a large fat or an infinite fat, like those options are just actually not even available, you know? And so that's a real, that's a real challenge too. So I've, I've definitely had situations like that where I've gone in and I've, I definitely, I do. I think we should always ask. I think it's helpful. I do agree. People generally want to help. Sometimes they don't know what to do with it. They'll get embarrassed or surprised or feel a bit confronted. So I've had people say, oh, I would, but we actually don't have that. And I'm like, okay, if you could share that with your clinic manager, that'd be great. It'd be great for me to have a gown that fits my body. So in the meantime, what can we do? So I, I agree. I've like learned how to have those conversations, but you know, me of 10 years ago, who was not liberated in terms of my body just felt humiliated the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I often felt humiliated in most medical settings, even if it was a setting where like they didn't have to do an exam at all, or maybe they like check your blood pressure and your heart rate. Um, but like, yeah, like in the medical, like it feels as though the medical setting is designed to humiliate fat people. Um, and and I think they do it like partly out of a sense of like punishment because you're the reason you're fat. Um, and like, I just finished listening to the audiobook of Aubrey Gordon's, uh, you just need to lose weight. 
and <laughs> like it was a it was great um to listen to it and like just have a lot of my experiences validated and like put into interesting like a wider context um but yeah like just yeah like the humiliation feels like by design right um and you know her points about how in fact um being overweight doesn't necessarily put you at all the risks that doctors say you're at risk of is like even that I was like really I need to look this up because <laughs> I doubted it myself you know I'm like well like they tell you every time they tell you every time that like you're on the verge of dying because you're so fat <laughs> it's like wait is that even true because as we know like the misogyny that we face in medicine is based on things that aren't true so of course why would it? <laughs> Right? Exactly. <laughs> Why wouldn't quote unquote weight science also be based on things like that? Yeah, it is. It almost feels it feels very tinfoil hat moments when you're like, surely, surely this is not what is being propagated and disseminated. And this is what everyone believes. Surely there there must be like room for the actual truth. And there's not it because it's so rooted in capitalism. Like this is what drives. I mean, I, yeah, so many of my episodes on this podcast are about like, uncovering it all comes down to capitalism <laughs> it really does it really does like things like are so meme, skewed like the four brains and it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> it oh genuinely gosh. feels like that every time <laughs> yeah yeah like follow the money and that that and health is no different like it's very interesting one of the episodes i recorded that's out is with um ann mcglattery who's a ubc medical student in her residency now or in their residency now but um, yeah, like what they talked about on the podcast, it was just literally every single day, every single lecture of medical school is about fatness being terrible. And so this is what doctors are taught. Then they start their practice and they don't question it. They don't question. They don't stay up to date. They don't dig deeper. They can't. There's lots of reasons why. Then you have pharmaceutical reps coming in and reinforcing it. And here's the latest drug you can subscribe or you can prescribe your patients and blah, 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 blah. It just, it, it's this huge snowball effect that happens. And when you actually look deeper, and this is one of the reasons I love Aubrey Gordon's podcast maintenance phase that I talk about and link to all the time. And the work that Aubrey does is it just, it's like, no, hang on, let's actually look at the data. What is here? And there are other great activists doing this work. Reagan Chastain does a lot with directly with doctors and writes about it. And so many people doing such good work. It's just, it feels like this huge mountain to climb to be able to get to where the doctors who we are in rooms with on the daily have even possibly been exposed to an alternative way of thinking. Sometimes when I talk about the anti-fat uh, bias that I've experienced in endocare and other forms of healthcare, um, like I, I sometimes hear from thin people who were told just to gain weight, right? And so what I've kind of been saying is that we're either too much or not enough, but it's never just right you know? Isn't that misogyny right there? Yeah. And like, you know, telling like that applies to things other than weight too, right? Like, is your personality too big? Are you too exuberant? Are you too meek? Are you like, you just need to change yourself so that we can accept you instead of just accepting that people can be different and that being okay. And like, it's totally fucking fine if people are different. <laughs> like what a concept. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it feels like it is so unique. Well, 
I don't, I don't know if uniquely is the right word, but it feels like very often those, that way of like, you're too much, you're not enough is so much about how, you know, people who were assigned female at birth, people who continue to, you know, like, what's the word? Like, it feels so ascribed to women, women presenting people. Like, it really is like, I don't, I, I coach, a, I, I'm a co- I do leadership coaching and I have like a lot of clients. I never hear the, my male clients talking about this. All of my female clients are like, so I get told I'm too direct in meetings and I need to like manage my tone and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's just pervasive and it shows up everywhere. And then, yeah, in medical care, it, it can be really harmful for a patient. Yeah, because it's, it's not just your job. It's not just, you know, the, the people who you have to see every day. It's your life. You know, and like a job is your life too, but it's different. It's a different part of your life than your your body and your health. Like it's a totally different relationship. Um, and you know, in workplace settings, it's so common and so pervasive for female presenting people to be um, told that they're just doing too much or not enough. <laughs> um, Usually it's too much though. You're too aggressive. You're too outspoken. You're too assertive. You're too this, you're too that. It's such an old thing too. Like that is so fucking old and boring. Like, could we just get past like, ah, like I get so furious on behalf of my clients, on behalf of myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then you think back to the things that you did and you dealt with and you encountered in your life at different parts of your life. Um, at parts of your life where maybe you didn't feel as liberated or as informed or as able to assert your your reality. <laughs> like, and it's just like, wow, like life really is an evolution, right? But it's just like, wow, the, the shit I put up with is incredible. Yeah, it's so true. And like, I used, when I was really young, I used to like, you know, like when you're on the bus or something and like an old person gets on, they're like, give me your seat. I was yes. like, oh my God, like, how could they do that? And now I'm like, I would totally do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm already on that I verge. You like, give me your seat. <laughs> I'm telling you, I turned 40 in 2020 and like, oh man. And I started, a po- and I got the idea to start a podcast and uh, like, everything is out there now. I'm just like, no. Every situation, I've, I've become, I mean, I'm just like, I'm just going to own my too enoughness, too muchness. I'm going to own my rage. I'm going to own my voice in a way I've never done before. And I do want to acknowledge the privilege that comes with being able to do that. I have a lot of safety. I have a lot of security. I can do that. I'm white. I'm educated. Like there's so much privilege I have, but I do every time, every time I like stand up, not only for myself, I feel like I'm doing it for every other person who's been told they're too much and just I don't know I think I now delight maybe perhaps over much on making other people uncomfortable I want I am I want to be that person who's like get out of the seat so I can sit young one or whoever yeah yeah I'm totally in like that's I get that and I think I think that comes maybe with age and doing work on ourselves I don't know but I like it Yeah, I like it too. And, but I like to your point about privilege, like I think that when we see, let's say, black women uh, doing a similar thing, like we never just see it as a woman 
asserting themselves or a fat woman. It's always a fat black woman, right? And like the blackness part of that misogyny is a really important factor in the way that experience, like they experience discrimination. Um, And so, yeah, like, you know, some of the people I spoke to in Bleed were talking about how they did their best to avoid becoming the stereotypical angry black woman. Um, And it was hard because they were angry about the way that they had been treated even sometimes by black doctors, um, you know? And, and so I think like, like allyship is really complicated. Um, especially if you are hoping for it or expecting it from a doctor, because sadly, like, even if there's more, um, racial or gender, uh, representation in medicine, oftentimes it's, there's no like experiential or class difference right because it's only a certain type of person typically who gets to become a doctor to pay for medical school to you know do those residencies and that kind of thing and so like as much as um you know race and gender matter um class really matters and it's a totally understated part of this conversation um and like i just like you hope that your doctor if it's a woman if it's a woman of color it's a queer person like you just hope that they'll side with you, but more often than not, they don't. And um, I think that um, a lot of doctors like to believe that they're on your side, but they don't present that way. And there's a lot of examination, I think, personal growth that needs to happen on the doctor's part, um, which sometimes, well, oftentimes they're just not willing to do. No, no, it's so true. Well, to have everything they believe challenged well, and also, and just on the fatness side of things, there are very few fat doctors. Yes. But the ones who are, like, because one of the top endosurgeons in the world, uh, Dr. Sinervo, is a bigger person. Um, you know, and so, like, and I've never been operated on him or anything like that, but, like, I'm just, like, my vision of him, I met him, I met him at the end of summit, and I just, like, hope that he's, like, one of the good guys, you know, that, like, is, like, you're fat, no big deal. We'll still do the surgery. Right? Because <laughs> this is the other piece that comes in with fatness. A lot of times there's a refusal to do medically, surgery. yeah, like medical interventions, like surgery. It's like, it's dangled in front of you. It's like only if you lose X amount of pounds or only if you get your BMI to X, Y, Z number. Like it's that is just so unethical and problematic in and of itself. But no problem, you can have weight loss surgery tomorrow. So we'll anesthetize you for weight loss surgery, but we won't anesthetize you for life-saving endosurgery. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, Tracy, what was, I, I'm really curious as you were doing this research, talking to people, going through this experience yourself, like was there something that just shocked you to your core? Like what, Maybe there were a few things, but like, what really surprised you? Hmm. This isn't really related to fatness, um, but the the tentacles of pharma reaching into endocare are are so. There are many, and they are so prevalent, and. Um, in the U.S., there's a database called Open Payments where you can go in and look up a doctor, a hospital, an institution, a pharma company, and see how much money they give to who, for what reason, how much, and when. Canada does not have such a database. 
Um, and it's sorely needed because right now it's a pharma industry led a disclosure thing that they kind of did out of, I think, a sense of uh, growing mounting pressure where basically the top 10 pharma companies will disclose how much they gave to doctors and institutions in a year, but they won't say to who or who got how much or for what reason. So it's just like a company will be like, we gave $18 million this year and then that nothing else. And like, that doesn't help me. Um, and I liked, I think that a lot of doctors like to believe that they are not influenced by pharmaceutical companies, that their prescribing practices are not changed by pharma's presence. But that's actually just not true. And there have been multiple studies, including research, uh, you know, uh, validated by ACOG in the U.S., um, the Association, uh, the yeah, of uh, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Sorry, um, my Canadian brain was on. <laughs> Uh, the but yeah like admitting as much that even just a free meal can influence i'm not saying that like that doctor is like you know like a a vacant brain to be programmed by pharma like i'm not saying that but i'm just saying that those those friendly relationships can and do change the way that people get care and endo is it's prevalent in endo because Endo receives almost no government funding in Canada or the U.S. for um, disease unrelated to fertility. So most studies in the U.S. about endo are tied to fertility in some way. Um, and um, I think that, um, yeah, like the the lack of that understanding in the Canadian context is really detrimental. Um, because it gives, it doesn't give patients like a, a good point of view on how their care is being informed. So you don't know if the reason you're being prescribed an IUD is because your doctor has a relationship with uh, Bayer, the maker of Mirena. Uh, you don't know if uh, you're getting prescribed Oralisa because they have a relationship with AbbVie. Um, you don't know if, you know, the reason they want to give you Vizan or any other kind of uh, hormonal or hormone modulating drug is because of these drug relationships. And as I say in Bleed, you know, pharma is both is both the biggest funder and the biggest profiteer of endo um, because they're the ones who are leading all these studies. Um, and that's as true in Canada as it is in the U.S., except it's not as... Um, we can't, like, investigate it as much in Canada because of these disclosure policies. And I think that that's something... Uh, that I really want to focus on uh, in my future work. Um, Please. Yeah. People have a lot of different aspects of endo covered, but in Canada particularly, I think there's not enough being talked about when it comes to pharma influence, not just in endo, but in all forms of healthcare. Well, even I experienced that. So when I went to this kind of run-of-the-mill gynecologist, she was like, she was wanting to do the surgery on me, unfortunately, but she's not an endo specialist. So she even mentioned ablation. I'm like, no, no, no. It should be excision, if anything. And why would you do it? Are you an endo specialist? And she's like, no. I said, well, I don't want you doing that surgery. Then, so we tried a series of meds and yeah i was given or Alyssa because which was was really hard on my body this is the other thing too that's really challenging and i imagine part of the misogyny as well around endo treatment is 
everybody's body reacts differently to these meds. So a lot of times you try a whole bunch of stuff. So I tried four before I found one that actually kind of worked for me. But, or Alyssa, I said, oh, and I asked, I'm always like, oh, tell me why you've chosen this one. Oh, well, a farm, the farm, pharma rep was in last week and we have free samples. And I'm like, so is it the best for my care or are you just giving it to me because you have free samples? And she's like, free samples. I'm like, and I said, well, and how much is it? And it was actually really expensive. And she goes, we just have to start somewhere and try some stuff. And I'm like, great sign me up to be a guinea pig and try a whole bunch of really serious like an orlissa affects you at the brain level and i was like oh my god i guess we'll try well, yeah, it because it affects your pituitary gland which is in your brain right um lupron does the same yeah and lupron's a thousand dollars a shot in canada and they wanted to try that on me and i'm like no and the impact is is lupron is a very scary drug <laughs> there's actually like lawsuits out against it and well, i was like lupron no and orlissa are kind of like I don't know if they're siblings, but they're definitely cousins, like first cousins, um, just in terms of the effects that they have on on your hormones, but also on your bones. Like the reason why Lupron um, is only per, like Lupron, like AbbVie itself has said that Lupron should only be used for up to a year uh, with ADVAC therapy because of the effect it has on your bone density and bone loss. And Orlissa is uh, 24 months um, with ADVAC therapy for the same reason. Um, the only difference, like, well, there are differences in the, like the mechanics of the drugs, but like Lupron is a shot. So once you take it, it's in you and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Whereas Oralis is a pill. And if you're like, I'm having a real bad time, you can stop taking it and just kiss all that money goodbye. Right. And like in the U S like it's like 1200 bucks a month. Like it's insane. Well, and it's interesting about Lupron, like there are all those guidelines, same with Vizane that I'm, what I'm on now, it's the only thing that worked to stop my, like, I was bleeding, like, like to the point of having to go to the ER from blood loss. It was the only you thing that has adenomyosis. Um, well, interesting. I was diagnosed yes with that. And then when I had the deeper ultrasound with Dr. Leonardi, he said no, but I do have fibroids. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Sorry. I know. It's a whole thing. I know. I know. Oh, we could talk like details of all the symptoms and the, and this is the thing too. This is the other part. Well, let me finish my thought about Lupron. So they have all these guidelines. This is the other part that's really challenging for patients and endometriosis care and why you almost have to become your own doctor and your own advocate is like, I have people like one of my good friends has been on Lupron now for like nine years. And she gets it every three months. So it's completely counter to recommendations, but it's working for her. It's the only thing that worked. But this is the thing, like her doctor, when she did some research, her doctor's like, yeah, it's fine. No problem. I'm on Vizane. I'm not, I've been on it now. It's probably been a year I've been on it. There's no studies done on impact of Vizane after 18 months. And when every doctor I've talked to, they're like, I'm, it's fine. It's fine. You can go forever. Because the plan right now is to keep me on this until menopause. So like 10 years of Vizane. We don't know what that does. There's no research. But it's like, okay. <laughs> but also like that, like we're just going to keep you on this drug until menopause is informed by the false notion that endo stops when you go into menopause. And it doesn't. Um, and <laughs> so like they're just telling you this because they think that as soon as you go into menopause, like the elimination of periods means that you'll just never have endo pain. But like I had, I went into surgical menopause uh, when I had my hysterectomy almost three years ago and I still randomly get endo pain. Um, 
because I have new growth of lesions, but also my surgeon left behind the plaque of endo that was on my bowel because he didn't have a colorectal surgeon in the room. Why not? They knew you had bowel endo. I know. I know. The things that I know now that I didn't know then, like, it's just the whole thing. But yes, like, and so, but like endo has been found in fetuses. It's been found in people way past menopause, like in their 70s and 80s. Like, so you may not have the same experience of like cyclical pain, but it doesn't mean that there's no pain and no side effects of the endo. Um, and I'm sorry to break it to you, but like just waiting till menopause is not, it's not like scientifically backed. No, it's not. I know. Well, and I've, t- I've met with two surgeons and they're like, let's just keep going. Cause you're okay. You're mostly okay. And I'm like, but am I? Should I, but then I'm, I have to say, because of medical fat bias, I'm terrified, Tracy, to actually have surgery. And so I feel like I'm putting my self and my health at risk by not getting a hysterectomy. Um, but I'm terrified of that. I, my body will not be treated well and there will be and then and then the complications with hysterectomies can be pretty significant as well so I almost I just I feel really stuck and there's no help yeah I mean like I knew I wanted a hysterectomy when I was 26 well I knew before then too but that's when I started asking for one because that's when I went off the pill and tell me why they said no (laughs) (laughs) oh uh yeah you'll just change your mind right what if you want to have kids yeah because I never wanted kids like I knew when I was a kid that I didn't want kids um but I always thought you're gonna change your mind as if like this person I've known for 15 minutes knows me a person who has known myself my entire life (laughs) yeah or a lot of a lot of people say get the whole well I have to talk to your husband first it's like pardon me I'm in charge of my body but like, I could go bungee jumping today, sign a waiver if my cord snaps and I die. It's my fault. I could go uh, meet up with a plastic surgeon and be like, can you just like redo my whole face? Yeah. <laughs> if you have the money, no problem. Like, why is that you're going to change your mind only applicable when it comes to reproductive issues? What's the answer? <laughs> well, I mean, it's misogyny. Okay. Right? <laughs> it's the idea that like these doctors know better than you do. Right. Um, and so like, I just find that so frustrating because there's no actual real reason why, like if you, if a person comes to you and says, I know I don't want kids. I've never wanted kids. The answer shouldn't be, you're going to change your mind. It'd be like, are you sure? Good. Okay. Let's go. Let's do it. Believe people. Yeah. Like believe people, but also like, there are more than one way to have a kid. And I know like the biological child is like kind of put up on this pedestal, but there are surrogates. You can freeze freeze your eggs before you have a hysterectomy. You can uh, adopt children. You can just become the cool aunt <laughs> to your friend's kids, your family's kids. Like there are so many other ways to have kids in your life um, that don't involve like giving up your health um, just to maybe one day you're going to change your mind. Yeah. You're bringing, you're having me think about like that whole, like the motherhood and a proper mother is one who sacrifices. It's like that's showing up here. Yeah. Like sacrifice your health 
and your mental health too, because every time you're in pain, it's breaking your brain down. Like, and it's, it's like, it's pain is not purely physical. Um, and there are lots of studies to suggest that like the experience of pain causes anxiety and the more anxious you are, the more sensitive you are to pain. And then the more pain you're in, the more anxious you become. And it's like this terrible cycle of misery. And it's like, you could help me stop this. Like maybe my bones won't be in the best shape when I'm 70, but at least give me a couple good decades, <laughs> you know? Right? Oh, wow. And it's like, it doesn't affect you at all. No. Like, just let me do it. And I deal with the consequence. I'm allowed to deal with the consequences of literally everything else. I can not get vaccinated for COVID. And if I get COVID or long COVID or I die from COVID, that's my fault. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating. So, because you, so it sounds like if you start asking for it at 24 and you got it three years ago, you almost, almost a decade, you were trying to get a hysterectomy. Yeah, it was 26 when I went off the pill and I got the hysterectomy right before I turned uh, 36. Yeah. Um, it was long. It was a long process. Um, and it only, um, I only found a surgeon willing to do it once I moved to a different province, right? So I'm from Quebec. I had lived, I moved to Ottawa. I lived in Ottawa for three years. And it was only when I was in Ottawa that I finally found somebody to do it. And it was because I was like, well, I'm in a new city. I got new doctors to convince. Maybe it'll go better than what happened in Montreal, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And were you able to get to an endo specialist, like an endo surgeon? Um, so I don't think endo is the only thing that this doctor does. Um, but I was so desperate and making decisions from a point of desperation is not always, is, is rarely a good position to be making like life altering decisions from. But I was just like, I'm, I've had it. Like, I just don't want to do this anymore. Like if this doesn't work for me, it's time to get off this planet type thing. And so I was like, yeah, like it's kind of like a do or die moment, you know, like it has to happen. Um, and so like, I would never advocate for people doing things from that perspective because it makes, it makes you make rash decisions. And admittedly in retrospect, I think like I always wanted the hysterectomy. And then when I got diagnosed with endo and adenomyosis, I was like, okay, well, hysterectomy is the right decision. Um, but to remove the ovaries and the fallopian tubes and the cervix, like knowing now, like, if I knew then what I know now about um, the growth of, of the disease, uh, maybe I would have made like a different decision. Maybe I would have kept an ovary or something like that. Um, but honestly, like I decided to just cut it all out because I didn't know if I would ever see a surgeon again. Right. And like, why have more surgeries? The Canadian healthcare system has you. Yeah, that is true. You may never see one again. Yeah, or like may not convince them well enough because, well, you're functioning okay. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm getting. You're functioning okay. You're not dying of pain and you're not bleeding out and dying that way. So you're okay. Yeah. But like, it, why is it their decision to make that you're okay? Yeah. If you don't feel okay and you're telling them you're not okay, why did they get to say, well, in my books, you're okay? Because if they're not like actively dying of the worst disease ever, therefore you don't like deserve it like deserve surgery or care well and even if you do get surgery here at least in ontario to see kind of a you know someone who is you know 
like an endosurgeon qualified does a lot of that kind of surgery. I mean, the waits to even just get a first appointment, I waited two years to see Dr. Leonardi. Uh, for surgery, you're looking right now, it's like two, three year waits. So you're looking at like five years before you could even have anything done. So a lot of people have you, you, I'm sure know, I'll just share for the listeners. A lot of people like leave. I'm part of a group that goes to Romania where you can get a, like an excellent one of the top surgeons who do does endo work, Dr. Maitroy, um, in Romania, you go to Bucharest and you pay like six to $10,000 um, to get that. And that covers like a complex type surgery versus, and you can get it like scheduled right now. The waiting list is a month and a half. Yeah. Yeah. People go to Brazil. They go to US. US obviously is a lot more expensive. You're like, although there's a, a hospital in Atlanta that caps it at, I think, I think it's like 50 to 100,000. I forget. That's a big difference in numbers, but something like they put a cap. They're like, okay, you would pay up to. Yeah. And often if you don't have insurance, they like, they negotiate a bit better with you. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, definitely like it's, but like I would, you know, at this point in my life, if I hadn't had that surgery a few years ago, I probably would go to Romania or Mexico. I've thought about that's where I would go. There's also a person in Greece who does it. But like this, what I'm, what I guess the point here is like, this is what's happening. This is what people are, they're so desperate to have their, their pain taken seriously, to receive a diagnosis, to have treatment, like surgical endo treatment that they are like working as much as possible. Like people are borrowing money, doing GoFundMes to just get care because we can't provide that here in Canada. And that is brutal. To that point, I think like an important distinction to make is that people don't only choose to go elsewhere for surgery just to have surgery. I think they do it because you can self-refer to these places without begging a GP to send you to the right place hoping they know an excision specialist. Um, and so it cuts down a lot on the medical discrimination gaslighting you might face um, to just DIY, to like self-refer to one of these endo centers and be like, fuck it, I'm getting out of here. I can't deal with these fucking asshole doctors anymore. I just want to like GTFO, get this fucking surgery done and then come back and be fine. Like, <laughs> so it's not just like, skipping to the front of the line for surgery it's also skipping ahead of all this bullshit that you experience in the medical system which has a huge again talk about emotional mental health like a hugely impactful yeah 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 oh oh my god okay now i'm furious <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> oh, it's so, I mean, can I just, I, I want to read a blurb because I just love this so much. I, I copied it down, which is that Bleed isn't a self-help book. It's an evidence file and an eye-opening, enraging read. It will validate those who've been gaslit, mistreated, or ignored by medicine and spur readers to fight for nothing short of revolution. Oh my God, that's brilliant. It's uh, such a like, fuck yes. Because it's, it is, it's what we're, facing, I think, you know, we're talking about endo specifically, but I imagine people are listening who have their, you know, other conditions that they're struggling with and are really relating to the challenge, the struggle, the bias. Yeah, for sure. Like I've even heard from people with Lyme disease who are like, you know, talk about a condition that has been like totally misunderstood and ignored by doctors forever. 
only now is there starting to be more recognition of what it looks like and how it can affect you long term for the rest of your life. You know, if you don't get it with antibiotics within a certain window, like you're trapped with it for the rest of your life. Um, and that has had devastating consequences for a lot of people. Um, and so even if they can't identify with some of like the like reproductive care element aspects of it, um, I think it's still like the salvo for like the system is fucked up and like we're, we're all paying into this, especially in Canada, we're all paying into it with our taxes and it's not built to service anymore. Um, and you know, that's not because universal healthcare is a failure. It's because governments, provincial and federal, have all cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. And we're also complacent about it. We're all just like, I guess that's just the way it is. At least it's not the US. Oh, yes, that's what we do. <laughs> and it's like, we're so proud of a failing system because it's not the US. And that's fucked up. Like, we should not be willing to accept this garbage care that we pay so much money for out of our taxes. Um, because we're afraid of instead of getting better, it's going to get worse. But honestly, it's so bad right now. Like it could get worse, I guess. But like we have almost nothing to lose now by fighting for a better system. And yet like we're so protective. It's like, it's like we don't want to lose what little we have. And so we like fiercely defend it. God, so much scarcity. I know the scarcity complex is so frustrating and it's what frustrates me so much about Canadian attitudes towards uh, healthcare. But like the system is broken, not because universal healthcare is a failure. It's because the governments have failed us. Um, and like, we need to hold them accountable for that failure, but we don't <laughs> like, we should be in the street. Why aren't we in the street? You know, there's so many things we should be in the streets about and we just we accept. And I, I think, yeah, this is where I think systemic oppressions like misogyny, capitalism, all of it. It's just designed so perfectly that being in the streets feels too risky. And so we don't. And I just, yeah. What are some things we can do, Tracy? Like if, if like, are, do you have one or two practical things that we can take away whether it's even self-advocacy or even just addressing the bigger problem of what you just named. I mean, everything will sound too simplistic, I think, because it's like, just do this, just do that. But I will say, I'll just talk from my own personal experience and that giving fewer fucks about the way that you're perceived by people in public, but also people in the medical setting is really freeing. And if you can get there, it takes practice. It takes a lot of introspection. It takes doing things that are uncomfortable. But if you can get there, you will be so happy you did. Um, and so, and it's still a work in progress. I'm not like fixed, you know, like there are doctor's appointments that send me back in like instant tears, you know, but like if you can start developing that, because the doctors don't have all the answers. They don't know what's going on and they don't see you as a whole person oftentimes. Um, so being able to just be like, no, this is fucked up. I'm not willing to accept this. Um, or like, I think that you're discriminating against me because I'm fat. Um, or finding a way of saying that that won't immediately put them on the defensive. But like, even the fact that we have to like, um, like change ourselves to like suit their egos, you know, is, is a thing it, unto itself. <laughs> um, but just being able to resist and push back 
is good for your brain. Um, even if you don't get this, the help you need and the help that you want, like, were you even going to get it if you didn't fight? That's the thing. Yeah. You can at least you tried. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. I love that. Yeah. And so I think that that's like my biggest takeaway. And also just, um, in terms of what we can do to help ourselves is to see that these are not personal problems alone. They are also systemic problems. And you have representatives at the local, provincial, and federal levels that are accountable to you, even if it doesn't feel like they are. And so becoming more engaged uh, locally, provincially, federally in promoting healthcare and access to healthcare for all sorts of different reasons, even if you don't have endo, you know, bias in healthcare, I think is important. And so if you have the spoons, as they say, if you have the wherewithal and the energy to do that kind of stuff and to turn your anger outward instead of inward, like that can be such a revelation too. Um, and so just becoming like just more demanding, like you deserve respect, you deserve care, you deserve all the things that other people get to take for granted and you don't get them because you're fat, like that's fucked up and people should know that's fucked up. It's not something that we should just internalize. Um, and so, yeah, those are my big takeaways is, uh, fuck Apple. No, <laughs> no, but, but yeah, it, it really does matter. And you don't want to be at the end of your life thinking of all the things you should have, could have, would have done if only you'd felt more empowered. Right. And so do it now. What have you got to lose? Exactly. Oh, I love it, Tracy. I always close interviews with because uh, we bitch and moan for about an hour and then we we come to joy because <laughs> it is called fat joy. <laughs> so so what brings you joy? How do you choose joy? How do you feel connected to joy? What's your joy story? Yeah, there are a few things that um, bring me a lot of joy and the pandemic was hard because it basically erased all of those things. One was going to live shows like music. You may be able to tell I'm a huge punk rock fan. All of my chapter titles are references to punk songs. Um, so like, and like the experience of being in a room with other people and like this loud music and everybody singing and moving, it's like so liberating. Uh, and like the energy is like unmatched, right? And so I love going to shows. I'm still a bit careful and reluctant. Like I, right now I'm only going to the ones that I really want to go because of COVID. Um, but I used to just go to a show just to go to a show, right. Just to get out of the house. Um, uh, and traveling was the other one. <laughs> so both the things I love dearly were like ripped away from me during the pandemic, but I'm starting to travel a bit more. I just came back from a book tour. I'm going on vacation for a month. Um, and like, it feels so good to be back at that. Um, and like all the things that I love about traveling, just like sitting in a cafe or a bar and just talking to the person next to you, like those kinds of things that you just, it's hard to do. And like the busyness of life, you know, in and out of different businesses and cafes and restaurants and that kind of thing. Cause you have to go home and do X, Y, Z. Um, so those are things that give me a lot of joy at gardening, taking care of plants. I love that was easier to do during the pandemic. Everybody, everybody became a plant lady. I have still like more than a hundred plants. Um, 
and I have a little garden and I like take care of it. And like, yeah, those are the, the three big, big ones. Plus like, I love animals. I have cats. Like, well, right now I only have one cat because my two long-term friends uh, died recently, but I have one now. His name is Toast and he's a, he's a real chaos cat. He's, he does parkour every day, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> That's so delightful. I love the name Toast. <laughs> He's an orange kitty. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, those are my main main things, I think. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing those with us, Tracy. And thank you for being here. This has been, <laughs> very selfishly, a real joy to complain about endocare in a lengthy conversation. And I'm just so grateful for your expertise. I'm so grateful you wrote this book. I'm loving that it's just spreading and people are reading it and having their, you know, eyes opened. And because it's like, it's about endo and it's also about a lot of bigger, important issues that need to be addressed. So thank you for writing it and sharing yeah, it with us. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> yeah. Lovely to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about, expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. So for Tracy's episode, I, of course, had to choose a poem connected to body. And I've always loved the mystery of this one by Natalie Diaz. It's called From the First Water is the Body. And it it feels like the mystery <laughs> with which so many illnesses, diseases, health conditions are treated when it comes to people with uteruses. And my everlasting hope that that starts to share and certainly Tracy's work is part of that change. So here it is from the first water is the body by Natalie Diaz. Two, three, four, five asterisk. The river is my sister. I am its daughter. It is my hands when I drink from it. My own eye when I am weeping and my desire when I ache like a yucobel in the night. The river says, open your mouth to me, and I will make you more. Because even a river can be lonely. Even a river can die of thirst. I am both the river and its vessel. It maps me alluvium. A net of moon-colored fish, I've flashed through it like copper wire. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. 
All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.